This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So, have you ever had uh, something on your mind that you just couldn't shake and it felt like if you didn't talk to somebody about whatever was on your mind that you were just going to explode? So uh, you call up a family member or a friend or a coworker in haste and all you want to do, right, is just unload and you want to share your heart with them and you want to speak with somebody who can help shoulder that burden that you're carrying. And then as right as you call them, as right as you're about to launch into sharing with them, then they start talking about their problems. Right? Um, they, they start talking about themselves. Like you called to talk about your stuff, but then it, they turn the table somehow and they start talking about themselves. And suddenly like this switcheroo happens, right? Um, and you find yourself on the other end of the phone listening to them. The worst, right? It's the worst. And I mean, we all know those people and uh, we, we need to be upfront and we need to be transparent. We need to bear our souls. And the minute that we step across that line to be vulnerable with somebody, then the door slams in our face. And have you ever have that friend who just doesn't have ears to hear? Maybe you have the friend who's the one upper. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, you tell them about the struggle that you're going through and they're like going to top it. They've got a worse story, right? Um, you tell them about this like breakthrough, this victory that you had, and guess what? They've got something better that happened to them this week. And it just seems like they're wholly just incapable of hearing you out. They have to filter everything that you're saying and that you're dealing with through their own story and turn it back and make it about them. I'm assuming I've done that sometimes. I'm assuming you've done that sometimes, but I'm assuming you've also talked to people like that. And it's the worst. But you ever feel like God's like that? Like, do you ever feel like God's deaf? Or... Maybe God's just absent. Probably, if we're honest, we all have. It sounds tough to put it that way, but probably we, you can all relate to what I'm saying. Right? We, we pray and pray and pray for someone, or we like pray and pray and pray about something, and the distance between our prayer and God's answer just seems like impassable. Like we're never going to be able to get to that answer spot or even get like halfway there. And we're, God, are you even listening? 
Do you even hear me, God? Like, I'm praying hard. I'm praying as hard as I can. I'm using the words that I know. I'm trying to be as honest as I can. I'm praying faithfully. God, do you have ears to hear? And if you haven't experienced that sort of wilderness in your Christian walk, then you're probably unique among us. I have repeatedly. Repeatedly. And so I, I got to be honest, when, you, when we read today's focal passage, which is Genesis 18, um, when I was reading that all week this week, I, was, I found myself getting jealous. Like jealousy just like bubbling up in me. Because God, he continues making these appearances to Abraham. And God speaks like openly with Abraham. And God, he, in this passage, he even entertains Abraham's debate. And like God, he's all up in Abraham's space. All over Abraham's story. God is all over Abraham's story. And that, despite Abraham's, he, he keeps mixing in disobedience with obedience, yet God's still all over this dude's story. He keeps mixing in unrighteousness with righteousness, and God's all over his story, and I'm left like scratching my head like, how in the world? How'd you do it? Like, how did you pull this off to get God doing this with you all the time? How did you get God all over your story like that? Like, I'm jealous. And so I want to invite you just in the next little bit that we have together to consider more of Abraham's perplexing journey to me because it really is on some level perplexing. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, for you sitting there as well as for me standing here, where this is going to intersect with your life today, because I found that when I'm preaching, everybody sitting there and listening hears something, the sermon, a different way. It's one of the most mysterious things to me. Um, and, and, and so God is speaking to y'all in different ways, even though you're actually hearing the same thing. And so I'm wondering, where's God going to intersect with your story today? Where might God in the next few moments like be trying to grab your attention? And so I, I want to invite you to just be attuned to that and be attentive to that. To maybe maybe God's like doing some small nudges on you or oh, some words or whatever lead from the Lord that might be coming. So I, I just want you to try to be attentive to that. We're going to look at Genesis 18 together. And it begins this way. It says, Adonai appeared to him, that is to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. All right, and so the story here, this chapter, begins with what we call a theophany, right? An appearance of God to Abraham. And this, this shouldn't be overlooked because God appears and God is there, and he appears at the Oaks of Mamre. And this is an incidental. Um, Mamre, by the way, is a word that means vision. Right? The Oaks of the Vision. So this scene is one of Abraham. He's on this sweltering, hot day, the sun beating down, sitting at the door of his tent. And he's situated there under an oak tree. And in that place, God appears to him in a vision. 
And this, by the way, this oak of Mamre is right next to where pretty soon Abraham is going to be buried. But even before he's buried there, his wife Sarah is going to be buried nearby. And then his other family members are going to be buried here nearby as well. And so the Lord appears to Abraham. And let, let's not just roll past that. Like that's something that's probably kind of rare to us, the Lord appearing to us. Maybe it's something we long for. I'd love for that to happen. For the Lord to appear, whether physically or in a vision like that. <laughs> I'm jealous. Well, the text continues and it says uh, in verse 2, He lifted up his eyes and looked and saw that three men stood near him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and he bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, that's interesting. My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please don't go away from your servants. Please, let a little water be fetched. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I'll get a piece of bread so you can refresh your hearts. And after that, you may pass. For therefore, you will have passed by your servant. And they said, they said, uh, very well, do as you have said. And so all of a sudden, in the midst of this vision that Abraham's having, three mysterious figures seemingly come out of nowhere. They just like pop up into the story. Well, who are they, right? <laughs> Strangers? Are they messengers of God? Are they angels? Is it God himself with two angels? Perhaps it's the triune God. Could it be? And I think there's a great reason to think that it's either God with two angels or the triune God himself. And as we read the story, you'll see that the lines keep getting blurred between one figure and three figures, one figure and three figures. God and the visitors seem to blend and merge. And so I think it's permissible to understand this story of this appearance of God to Abraham as the triune God or God with two celestial sidekicks. And at, at, at the sight of God, Abraham, he leaps up and he asks if he can get them a drink, some food. His hosting manners kick in and he refers to himself as your servant or more strongly, your slave. There's another way to translate that. And this, this of course fits really well with the notion of the previous chapter that we, we, we looked at last week where circumcision renders one a slave to God. You remember that? And amazingly, God takes Abraham up on the offer. And so Abraham moves in haste. That word's mentioned five times here. Haste, 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 haste. And he, he mainly, actually, Abraham just goes around giving orders and then comes back to collect whatever he needs. So look at what the, the, how the story continues. It says, Abraham hurried or went in haste into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, or in haste, prepare three says of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and fetched a tender and good calf and gave it to the servant, his servant. He hurried to prepare it and he prepared it in haste. He took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared. He set it before them and he himself stood by them under the tree and they ate. And so 
in good Hebrew fashion. Abraham first offered a little water and then a piece of bread, but in due course, he brings back a feast. Surprises his guests with a feast. It's a kind gesture we're to conclude. But again, you notice that Sarah and a slave kind of do a lot of the work here. Once Abraham delivers the food, they sit under the tree and eat, and Abraham stands there in this place while they do so. They finish eating, and then they start to interrogate Abraham. And this is what they say. They ask him, oh, where's our verse go? Yeah, there it is, verse 9. They ask him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, here in the tent. And, you know, I'm not sure that Abraham was expecting the conversation to turn and be about his wife. I mean, it should be about him. He's the man of the house, right? No mahalos for the meal, no thank yous, no man talk. Uh, where's your wife Sarah is what they're curious about. But that's what, that's what happens. And so Sarah becomes the focus, and you'll know she's just inside the tent. And of course, she can hear through the tent walls. Perhaps she has her ear pressed up against the, the fabric of the tent. Or maybe she's like sitting in the back corner, like right where they can't see her, but she's like just enough where she can see and hear them. Either way, she hears her name being brought into the conversation. And what happens next is to me just incredible. Look at this, what the text says. He said, I'll certainly return to you. He's talking to Abraham. At this time next year, God's saying this, and sure enough, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah heard in the tent door, which was behind Abraham, and now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in days, and Sarah had ceased the menstruation of women. Sarah laughed to herself, or within herself, saying, huh, after, after I'm worn out, Will there be pleasure for me? My Lord being old. Ooh, she turns it and like puts the dagger back into him, you see. Um, Adonai said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Watch this. Watch what happened. Abraham, uh, God says to Abraham, why'd your wife laugh? Why'd your wife laughing? Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, will I really bear a child when I've grown old? Is anything too hard for Adonai? At the appointed time, I'll return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. And look, Sarah denied it. I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. For she was afraid and God said, no, you did laugh. <laughs> no, you did. You did. Like, I heard you. I'm God. Yeah, I heard you laugh, right? And so, <laughs> um, so you, to really get this, and the next section, right, we've got to remember a couple things. You, one is this. Abraham, he had this family motto, right? You all know this. We've been dealing with this for months now. This family motto of be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land with my image and likeness. The family motto, the family banner, the family crest. That's, that's what fueled Abraham. He needed an heir. That was the most important thing to him. And when we think back through his story, <laughs> We see from the end of Genesis 11 on that Abraham, he works overtime, right? To ensure that he lives up to his family motto. And not to put any pressure on him, but in chapter 12, God shows up and he reminds Abraham of the motto. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. 
And then what? God waits 99 years. And that's not all because God, God says, actually, he shows up in year 99. Abram's been waiting all this time. He shows up in year 99 and he's like, Abram, actually, one more year. Let's add another year to it. Make it an even hundred, right? Um, So, can you imagine, right? Abram had to be feeling stuck. God, do you have years to hear? We're 99 years in, you really got to make it 100. God, he, you know, he must have been thinking, God, when are you finally going to make good? You promised me this almost 100 years ago. When are you going to make good? When are you finally going to come through on what you told me, God? When are you going to stop promising me stuff, God, and actually do it? And so that's, that's, must have, that's what must have been going through his mind, right? Which leads us to the second thing, that Abraham's intent, he's just intent on making sure, just in case God doesn't come through, because he hasn't really yet, that he himself has his backup plan ready. And you've heard me talk about this, right? Um, a plan B, an insurance policy. His plan B was Lot, as we all know. His plan C was his commander-in-chief, Eliezer. His plan D was Ishmael. And each time God says, nope, not taking plan B, not accepting plan C, it's a no on plan D. No. And so if you can just try for a moment to like put yourself in Abraham's sandals, you're 99. And God's been telling you for all these years, 80 or more years at least, he's going to give you an heir. I mean, if you've got to wait that long, don't you start to doubt a bit. Come on. When God shows up, let's add another year. Doubt, right? You start doubting. Um. Absolutely, I think we start doubting. (laughs) So we got to keep these things in mind, and we have to keep in mind, right, in the previous chapter, Abraham laughed first. Remember that last week? Abraham laughed when the Lord told him that Sarah would bear a child. And now in this scene, overhearing the conversation with God, she laughs. It's like they're sticking daggers in one another. And so the name of the kid is God Laughs. Isaac. That's what we're going to name him. God Laughs. And it's crazy, but Sarah is shown here. (laughs) Just before Abraham, he's about to get himself into an argument with God, an extended argument with God. She's here kind of arguing with God. God asks Abraham why his wife laughed and not able to contain herself, she butts into the conversation between God and Abraham and says, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do it. Yes, you did, just stop already, right? We heard it, everybody heard it, we heard it. I mean, have, have you ever tried to cover something up with God? Like that? Like to fool him? Uh, to wiggle your, your way out of a sin? Uh, 
to justify it? <laughs> uh, I think I'm pretty good at that. Um, as my old college mentor used to say, to justify is to just a lie. And uh, I used to do this thing where uh, I'd, I'd ask for, you know, a cup of water in restaurants, right? Um, and then I'd go up and I'd, they'd always give the clear cup, right? Um, and so I'd go up and I'd like fill it with half, lim- half lemonade and half water. And uh, it still tasted like lemonade. Um, and they wouldn't know any better, right? Because it still looked like water. Uh, but I could, I could easily try to justify that kind of thing. Just a sip. They've got more. Got like bags of this stuff or whatever. Uh, they've got a ton of it. Jars of this stuff. A gallon of this stuff. And we do this with uh, our money and our time and our hobbies and so on. Uh, we do it with church. Ah. <sighs> got this thing scheduled and it conflicts with church i'll just skip out and church no big deal god doesn't really care nobody will notice we'll make a difference right i mean we become uh pros at loophole finding and covering up if we need to and as with sarah here god knows better like he sees through that even if others don't right <laughs> Am I alone here? (laughs) There's something else I want to draw our attention to here as well. It's the comment in verse 14. Check that out. Look how it says, Is anything too hard for Adonai? Other translations say something like, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Now, I I want to challenge you here today. Um, if I were to just walk up at any given time and ask you, hey, uh, Pat, do you think anything's too difficult for the Lord? Or, you know, um, Ivan, do you think anything's too difficult for the Lord? Uh, you're probably going to answer no, no, but not so fast. Um, maybe there are things that are too difficult for God. Sometimes when God can't. You ever considered that? Don't throw anything. Um, the scripture, I think, certainly suggests that there are things that God can't do that, that are out of God's reach. Things that are too difficult, actually, for Him. Uh, I was discussing this with some of my uh, seminary students this week and um, in, in a class, and once we got past answering uh, you know, the rush to answering, no, nothing's too difficult. Man, we hit pay dirt. Like gold. Uh, what's too difficult for God? Here's one that we discussed that maybe, it, well, it would be too difficult for God to create humanity without a redemption plan. He can't do it. He couldn't do it. it given His nature and character, He just couldn't do it. It's too difficult for him. You see, oh, it's so rich. Uh, scripture seems to suggest that all along, God has this covenant with uh, people from Israel, um, the Hebrews, and you know what? It's too difficult for God to find a loyal nation. 
Israel keeps turning their back on God. Wayward. It's impossible. God can't make it happen. He can't find, it's too difficult for him to find a loyal nation anywhere. Likewise, God can't find someone who will fulfill their side of the covenant faithfully. It's all over scripture. Not Abraham, not David, not anyone. And so God says, enough, right, enough. I'll do it myself. And so God becomes a human and he fulfills a covenant, the everlasting covenant that he made starting with Noah. And of course, it's too difficult, isn't it, for God to sin? That's too hard for him. He can't. This is a time when God can't. It's not possible. It goes against his nature and character. So yeah, there are things that are too difficult for God. There are times when God can't. God can't force his will on us. God can't make us yield to him, and he won't. God can't make us love him. That's up to us. There are times when God can't. Some things, the scripture suggests, are too difficult for God. And you know what? There's a lot of beauty. A lot of beauty to be found in those uh, places and times when God can't. And in the context of this story, uh, when it appears... Uh, that this old couple is just past childbearing stages. Can God give them a baby? That's the, that's one of the questions here. Is that too difficult for God? And the answer to that is no. That's not too difficult. God can. And it leads into another question that arises here. Can God destroy a wicked city like Sodom? Is that too difficult for him? The answer is no, it's not too difficult. God can destroy a wicked city like Sodom. But it raises a third question. Is it too difficult for God to destroy a wicked city like Sodom if there are righteous people in that city? That's an interesting question. We're going to circle back to that. Uh, let's look at the next verse. It continues. Then uh, the men rose up from there, the three, God, and looked down toward her over the face of Sodom. And Abraham went with them. You notice how it keeps saying like one person and three, right? It keeps mixing them. And God went with them to send them off. And then Adonai said, will I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Oh, Huh, have you ever noticed that? So we have these three men, God. They get, God gets up and looks down toward the face of Sodom. That's an interesting way to put it. And Abraham goes to bid God farewell, but as he does, God stops. He sees Abraham coming toward him again. And then the scripture, oh, it gives us this incredible gift. It takes us right into the mind of God. Oh, man. Don't glide past this. Because, did you catch this? Adonai, we go into God's mind and Adonai is saying, will I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Oh my goodness. 
First, we get into the mind of God. But, but second, we get the scene of God. God's in his mind debating with himself. <laughs> should I tell Abraham or not? Should I tell Abraham or not? Uh, should I tell Abraham or not? You know, wow, right? So God is prone to considering whether he should inform humans about his plans or not. <laughs> and sometimes he can decide, yeah, I'll tell them. Sometimes he can decide, no, I'm not going to tell them. And, you know, I'm sure we've all, whether we know it or not, um, have, have thought the latter, right? God, you knew this was going to happen, but you decided not to tell me? God, no warning, no, no inkling, no heads up, like nothing. You knew I was going to lose this person, but didn't give me a heads up. You knew we were going to lose the house, but didn't think to warn us. You knew the relationship was going to end that way, but didn't have God, didn't have the courtesy to let us know. You ever felt like God's kept something from you? We're so quick to run past these tension points in Scripture, but frankly, we need to slow down and just sink into them. Just live there and like sit there, dwell there. Because you know what? It's often in these tension points of Scripture uh, that the hard parts of the text that in our wrestling through them, we end up seeing the richest pictures of God and the richest sides of God. And so the question arises, in this instance, why would God debate telling Abraham whether he was going to destroy Sodom or not? Well, I think it's because God knows Abraham's track record. Abraham has a way of hearing from God and then taking matters into his own hands, doesn't he? When he does, he slows down God and God's plans. Maybe, you ever thought of this? Maybe it didn't have to take a hundred years to get Isaac. But all of Abraham's getting in the way of God caused it to take a hundred years. Just like it didn't have to take Israel 40 years in the wilderness, but their constant getting in the way of reaching home caused it to go on that long. I think that's the reason why. God didn't want Abraham to cause even more delays, so he's debating it. And once again, I'm sure you can relate. <laughs> uh, have you ever gotten in God's way? Like he had something on the horizon for you and you botched it, like you screwed it up. You messed it up. Yeah, none of us are off the hook on that. Let's, let's keep reading. Oh, so rich. Uh, Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the land will be blessed in him, for I have known him so that he may command his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of Adonai. And here you go. 
to do righteousness and justice. The way of Adonai is to do righteousness and justice, and that's what God expects of Abraham. I hang on to that, right? Because what I want you to see uh, here is that God in verse 19 commands Abraham and his offspring to do righteousness and justice. It's super important. Let's keep reading in 20. It says, Adonai said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I'll go down now. So he ends up telling Abraham, I'll go down now and see whether the outcry that has come to me is exactly what they have done. If not, I'll know. God has to ask if questions. Um, then the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before Adonai. And so either God with the two angels or the triune God, they head down to Sodom to scope things out. God hears the, the cries just coming up from the city. Something has to be done, right? Who was crying out? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Somebody there was crying out to God. It was a dire situation, a city laden with evil. And so God is compelled to go down and set things right. It's going to be a time of swift judgment as the story sets it up. God is grieved by and with Sodom, just like he was grieved in the time of Noah with the people outside the ark. And here we go. This God who hung his bow weapon up in the sky as a reminder for himself, God, note to self, never destroy the land again on account of human violence. He's had enough. In this story, no rainbow shows up. The reminder to God isn't there. Has God forgotten? He's going down to destroy the land. Has he forgotten? He's ready to rain down destruction on the land of Sodom. But now, no, 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 it's not a rainbow that reminds God of his promise. It's Abraham the slave. The guy who circumcised himself and put God's mark in himself so that when God sees him, it's a reminder, note to God, don't destroy. You made a covenant with this guy. That mark connects him to God. And when God looks at Abraham and sees the mark, God's reminded of his covenant with Abraham. And Abraham knows that. <laughs> and Abraham capitalizes on that in one of the boldest acts in all of Scripture. Look at this. Look at what happens. Abraham came near and said to God, In anger, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And Abraham poses this, this scenario to God. He says, God, perhaps there are 50 righteous within the city. In anger, God. It's kind of like a courtroom scene, right? God's, Abraham's putting God on trial. In anger, God. Uh, will you then sweep away and not bear with the place for 50 righteous who are within it? <laughs> God, may it be far from you to do something like that to kill the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be like the wicked. Ha, huh, may that be far from you. May the judge of all the land do justice. You see what's happened here? God has just told Abraham, maybe he shouldn't have, right? Because now this happens, but God has just told Abraham, he's, he's told, you, Abraham, you need to do righteousness and justice, Abraham, and all your offspring, y'all need to do righteousness and justice all the time. And so Abraham takes that and he turns it right back on God. Wait, aren't you the most righteous, God? Aren't you the most just? The righteous and just judge of the universe? 
If so, hmm, how in the world could you destroy the innocent in the city, the righteous in the city, just because there are some guilty in it? Conundrum. Uh, now, while many preachers and commentators like to reflect on Abraham's like kutzvah, here it is bold. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dwell on that. I don't think Abraham actually, some of your, your, if you have a whole old Bible, a print Bible, right, you might have a heading in there that says, Abraham intercedes, uh, for Sodom or something like that. <clears throat> Wrong. Um, as if he's interceding out of love for these people as those headings might have you believe, right? Who lives in Sodom that Abraham knows? Lot. Thank you, Lot. And God has just told Abraham, uh, again, maybe he shouldn't have, but he's just told Abraham, I'm going to go destroy Sodom. Abraham thinks, okay, uh, this God who makes promises over and over and never follows through is going to destroy my plan B. I don't think so. Not letting it happen. Quick, I got to do something. And so he starts arguing with God, right? Abraham isn't praying for the city out of love. He's arguing with God out of selfishness. And if we take a close look at ourselves, maybe we do some of this kind of bartering with God, right? We seem like we're praying for something good, but we have ulterior motives. I mean, you know, even in praying um, for a building, for the bridge church, for this congregation, I'm always like trying to check my motives on that. Is this out of selfishness? Is this God's will? Uh, do I have pure intentions? Uh, so Abraham, in my view, he's cloaking this prayer-like debate, whatever it is, with God in a, in a sense of having an interest in righteousness, but really his motive is just to protect Lot as plan B in case God doesn't come through again. This God who wants him to wait for another year. He's going to show up in another year and say, wait again. Right? So let's continue. Check this out. It keeps going on. Abraham drags this argument on. He says, uh, Adonai says, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, so he tells Abraham, then I'll bear with the whole place for their sake. No, I won't destroy it. And Abraham answered, watch what happens here. See now. <laughs> See now, I've... I've resolved to speak to my Lord, though I am dust and ashes. Uh, false humility, perhaps, I don't know. Perhaps the 50 righteous may lack five. Will you, because of the five, destroy the whole city, God? He said, I'll not destroy the whole city if I find 45 righteous there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, perhaps 40 will be found there. He said, I'll not do it for the 40's sake. He said, oh, don't let my Lord be angry, and I will speak. Perhaps 30 will be found there. He said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And see now, I've resolved to speak to my Lord again. Perhaps 20 will be, sounds medieval. I just want to be like a medieval voice when I say this. Um, um, perhaps 20 will be found there. He said, I'll not destroy it for the 20's sake, Abraham. Oh, don't let my Lord be angry with me. Um, I'll just speak just one more time. Perhaps 10 will be found there. He said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. And Adonai left when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. 
And so Abraham works God from 50 down to 10. <laughs> why? Why 10? Why doesn't he go to 1, right? Um, why 10? We don't, well, I don't exactly know, uh, but perhaps that's the number, if you read the story closely, the number of folks that Lot had in his household, right? He had him and his wife, his daughters, and their their fiancés or husbands or whatever, and then probably he had some servants, as you read the story. So probably 10 in Lot's household, is my guess. Um, and Abraham's uh, back and forth, you see, it's not born out of concern for Sodom. He's still concerned about plan B. He wants Lot to be preserved. If he cared about the whole city, he would have said 500, right? And left it at that. Or maybe. But um, so uh, God has told him, no Lot, no Eliezer, no Ishmael, one more year. But Abraham's clinging to this backup plan with all his might. Do you ever do that? Uh, I, I have. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Um, and it brings us back to that earlier question. Is it too difficult for God to destroy a wicked city like Sodom if there are righteous people in it? And you know what? Scripture's answer to that is, is no. Somehow God can do that. Wow. Let that sink in. God can hold even the innocent accountable for the misdeeds of the guilty among them. Guilt by association is a real live thing here. You see uh, guilt by association anywhere in our society today? Maybe we don't. Maybe we don't speak up and we just let things slide. <laughs> maybe we just roll with the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, and buy into the latest wokest ideas. Uh, that, by the way, is our word of the week this week, zeitgeist. Just a German word. I love it. It's a great word to know. It means the spirit of the age. And the zeitgeist of wokeness is alive and well in our context today. And you know what? Hitching oneself to the zeitgeist often leads people to adopt the latest fads and language and the latest societal views and the latest cultural trends just so they don't, you know, out of fear of not seeming outdated. It's easy to be guilty by association, to hook up with the zeitgeist. But God can hold even the innocent accountable for the misdeeds of the guilty among them. Doesn't seem fair, but somehow in God's economy, it's fair. What a sobering thought. Well, the story ends with a very interesting line, and Abraham returned to his place. You see, uh, when we try to force our will on God, and when we try to manipulate and find loopholes and put God in his place, at the end of the day, the reality should like smack us right in the face that all we can really, really do is return to our place. The place of humility. The place where we finally admit and realize that God's holiness, we, we realize God's holiness, and as such, we yield our lives finally and fully to Him as His slaves. That's our place. And there's a sense in which God finally puts us in our place. We have no choice to go back to that place because we're not God. We'll always be subservient. And so to recognize that, 
we're not God, but we're slaves to God, period. And so throughout the week, right, as I was reading this and rereading it and rereading it and ruminating on it, I kept coming back to Abraham and this back and forth with God. I've been reading, follow me, I've been reading this thing all week, this story all week, right, as, as if, man, Abraham's bold. Oh, man, he's bold. And I was thinking, wow, we can challenge God boldly. So I started praying. I started, I was praying this week, God, if you're rich, then show me a millionaire daughter or son of yours. <laughs> if you own a cattle on a thousand hills, God, then show me some land on the island of Oahu so we can get a church going, right? A church building going. If you own some land in these islands or all the land in these islands, show it, God. Just praying boldly, right? Um, if you own mansions and houses and uh, show me a building, come on, God. That's how I was thinking about that throughout the week, right? Praying like that. And then by the, by the sort of middle of the week, God like puts me in my place. Michael, the passage isn't even about praying boldly, right? It's about praying selfishly. Abraham was praying selfishly, Michael, and so are you. Uh. And so I want to leave you just with a couple of thoughts. Um, first is that this whole point of life, um, the whole point of life for the believer is summed up really easily. It's just to do God's will. Why are we here? To do God's will. Um, and that, of course, raises the question, well, what is God's will? And I think that's also an easy one, too, because it's the same for all of us. God's will isn't different for me than it is for you. It's the same. And it's just this, to draw all through, through our holy living, to draw people to Christ and unite all people under Christ. Or we could, like, pare it down a little bit. The, God's will is this, through our holy living, to unite all people under Christ. That's it. That's God's will. And so, after being put in my place this week, um, I'm realizing that more and more my prayers need to end like Jesus is for a reason, not my will, but yours be done. And uh, here's the best way that I've found to do that. Is just to get neutral. Um, to get to a place where, you know what, if God shows us a building, then great. And if he doesn't, great. Just neutral. Um, if, 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 God, uh, if God shows us land, great. And if he doesn't, then great. Um, and you know what, if God wants us to move into a house church movement, then great. And if he doesn't, great. It's just that we're open, we're neutral. And we do what the Lord says. Um, be, you know, we're, we're in neutral so that when God says to put it in drive, then we can hear Him clearly and go. And so neutrality is key. Uh, and you see, so many times we're out of neutral. Like sometimes we're in park. <laughs> uh, I know a lot of churches just straight up in park. Um, and. Sometimes we're just in drive, like full throttle on our own. And so the second thing that I want to share is this week I came up with this equation, right? Um, it's, it's been sitting on me uh, that plans minus God equals worry. <laughs> um, and so 
you know, a lot of the, the, the stress and the anxiety uh, in our lives, just like Abraham's, can be avoided if we remember or think back to this equation. Um, gosh, it's so easy to like move away from this. Yeah. You know, even even uh, though there are times when God can't, there are so many when He can. Uh, when He can heal. When He can mend relationships. When He can deliver us from evil. When He can keep His promises. When He can redeem. When He can transform. When He can make new. When He can restore hope. When He can lead. When He can guide. When He can speak. When He can show up. When He can hear. When He can listen. You know He's not deaf. He is Ishmael, the God who hears, the God who listens. The friend who listens, he has ears to hear. And so many times, when he can do things in the way that only he can. Amen? Amen, brothers and sisters. Stand up. Let me bless you today. If you would turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, may you go in the full confidence that you are slaves to a God who can. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go ahead.